Hello and welcome to Screaming in the Cloud with your host, cloud economist Corey Quinn. This weekly show features conversations with people doing interesting work in the world of cloud, thoughtful commentary on the state of the technical world, and ridiculous titles for which Corey refuses to apologize. This is Screaming in the Cloud. This episode of Screaming in the Cloud is sponsored by O'Reilly's Velocity 2019 Conference. To get ahead today, your organization needs to be cloud native. The 2019 Velocity program in San Jose from June 10th to 13th is going to cover a lot of topics we've already covered on previous episodes of the show, ranging from Kubernetes and site reliability engineering over to observability and performance. The idea here is to help you stay on top of the rapidly changing landscape of this zany world called cloud. It's a great place to learn new skills, approaches, and of course, technologies. But what's also great about almost any conference is going to be the hallway track. Catch up with people who are solving interesting problems, trade stories, learn from them, and ideally learn a little bit more than you knew going into it. There are going to be some great guests, including at least a few people who've been previously on this podcast, including Liz Fong-Jones and several more. Listeners to this podcast can get 20% off of most passes with the code CLOUD20. That's C-L-O-U-D-2-0 during registration. To sign up, go to velocityconf.com slash cloud. That's velocityconf.com slash cloud. Thank you to Velocity for sponsoring this podcast. Welcome to Screaming in the Cloud. I'm Corey Quinn. I'm joined this week by Valentino Valonghi, CTO of AdRoll. Welcome to the show. Hey, Corey, thanks for having me on the show. No, thanks for being had. One, let's start at the very beginning. Who are you and what do you do? Well, I'm CTO at Adro Group. And what Adro Group does is effectively build marketing tools for businesses that uh, want to grow. And they're looking to try to make sense of everything that is happening in marketing, uh, especially when it comes to digital marketing that effectively is going to help their businesses drive more customers to their websites and turn them into profitable customers effectively. Awesome. You've also been a community hero for AWS for the last five years or so. Yeah, I was uh, lucky enough to be included in the first group of uh, community heroes, which I think was started in 2014. Uh, It isn't still completely clear to me what exactly community heroes do besides obviously helping the company and what did we do to deserve to be called community heroes. I think lots of people such as yourself are doing a a great amount of work to, uh, to help the community understand the cloud and spreading and spreading uh, the the, uh, reasoning behind everything that is happening in the market these days. So maybe you should be a hero as well. Unfortunately, my uh, harsh line on no capes winds up being a bit of a non-starter for that. And I've been told the wardrobe is very explicit. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. I guess. Exactly. It all, it all comes down to sartorial choices and whatnot. So you've been involved with using AWS from a customer perspective for, I'm betting, longer than five years. Yeah, about uh, probably longer than a decade, actually. Longer than a decade. And it's amazing watching how that service is just, I guess how all AWS services have evolved over that time span where it's gone from, yeah, it runs some VMs and some storage. And if you want to charitably call it a network, you can, because latency was all over the map. And it's just amazing watching how that's evolved over a period of time where 
not only it was iterating rapidly and improving itself, but it seemed like the entire rest of the industry was more or less ignoring it completely as some sort of flash in the pan. I've never understood why they got the head start that they did. Oh man, such a long, uh, long time ago. I remember I was still in Europe before I came to work on, uh, to start up Adroll, but uh, in 2006, I think, was when S3 was first released. And uh, I remember starting to take a look at it and thinking, wow, now you can put files on, uh, on a system out there that you don't know really where it lives, but I don't need to have my own machines anymore. Uh, and it was the time that you used to buy co-locations online and it was a provisioning process for all of those. You needed to choose your memory size and you typically get a uh, co-located, co-hosted, uh, uh, shared host type, type situation. And it was expensive. And then, yeah, in 2008, EC2 came out, 2007 EC2 came out and it felt like magic. And at that point in time, Adler was running in a data center out here on Spear Street in San Francisco. And uh, I remember we had uh, two databases machines, both uh, RAID 5 and uh, one machine was uh, humming along fine, but the other one was uh, going on two drives, uh, two drives that were failing in the RAID 5. And we started driving the, uh, ordering the drives in, uh, on Amazon or uh, whatever, Newegg. And I think they were in back order at that time. And we needed to wait for a, for a week or two before those could arrive. At that moment in time, I made the call. That's it. We're not doing this anymore. We are going on, uh, on AWS. Uh, just give me two weeks and I'll migrate everything. I told the CEO. And then we'll be free from the data center. And I tell you, costs will be exactly the same. And actually, that's exactly what happened. <laughs> It took two weeks, they moved all the machines over, the costs were exactly the same, but we had no more needs to run to the store and provision extra capacity or buy extra capacity or any of that stuff. Um, it also allowed us a massive amount of flexibility. And then very early on, it was funny because uh, I, I think I've lived through all of the stages of uh, uh, of like disbelief when it comes to AWS or cloud in general, uh, where the first uh, the first uh, complaints were, well, it's not performant enough. If you want to run uh, MapReduce, uh, you cannot run it inside AWS. There's not, there's simply not enough I/O performance on the boxes. I even lived in the period of time uh, I was following closely when when GitHub was on. AWS at first, and then they moved to Rackspace afterwards because Gita, because AWS wasn't fast fast enough even for them. Uh, and they, they were working through some issues here and there. The, some, some, of those, some of those things were obviously real, like true immaturity situations. Uh, EBS has gone through a lot of ups and downs, but it's mostly been stable since then. Uh, living in now a day and age where uh, the EBS drives that you get from AWS are super stable, but it never used to be like that. And uh, you needed to kind of get adapted, uh, get, get used to the fact that an EBS drive could fail uh, or the entire region could go down because of EBS drives, which, uh, which has happened in US East uh, a few times in the past. But um, yeah, from, from those very few simple services with very rudimental and simple APIs, it does feel like they have, they've started to add more and more 
not only breath, because uh, obviously that's evident to anybody at this point in time. I don't think uh, anybody can keep up with the number of services that are being released. But what's really surprising is that um, for the services where they see value and where customers are seeing a lot of adoption and, and interest, they can go to extreme depth with, uh, with the functionality that they implement, the, the care with which they implement it, and, and ultimately with how much of it uh, is available for, for many of them. Like now, now you get over 160, I think, different types of instances. It used to be, it used to be that you only had six or seven, and now 160, some of them are FPGA, instances, which I think there's only maybe a handful of people in the world that can code those machines properly. Uh, and then certainly don't work at my company right now. <laughs> uh, well, well, that's always the fun question too, is do you think that going through those early days where you were building out an entire ecosystem, on, or, sorry, an entire infrastructure on relatively unreliable instances and disks and whatnot was I guess, a lesson that to some extent gets lost today. I mean, it, it taught you early on, at least for me, that any given thing can fail. So architecting accordingly was important. Now you wind up with ultra reliable things that never seem to fail until one day they do and everything explodes. Do you think it's leading to less robust infrastructures in the modern era? It's possible. I think if people get on, uh, on AWS thinking that we're gonna run in the cloud, so it's never going to fail because Amazon manages it, I think they're definitely making a, a real mistake, a very short-sighted statement that right there. Not just because of that, uh, in case of failures, but a couple of years ago, I think, maybe three years ago, there were all of those Zen vulnerabilities coming out that Amazon needed to patch and entire regions needed to be rebooted. And what, did you do at, what do you do at that point when your infrastructure is not fully automated and capable to be restored without downtime uh, in, in user-facing software? You're going to need to pause development for like weeks uh, just in order to patch a high urgency vulnerability in your core infrastructure. That's, that's, just a, that's just an event that is not even a fault of anybody. It's not even in the necessarily under full control of Amazon and you need to be ready for some of that stuff. So there are, I would say that there are, there are systems that are simply, lots of companies that especially in their first journey to moving stuff inside AWS, they tend to just replicate exactly what they have in their own data center and just move it inside AWS. I know this because, for example, Adrol has done that the first time that we migrated into AWS. We first migrated just our boxes. And then we quickly learned that it wasn't always that reliable. And so we needed to figure some of that stuff out for ourselves. And effectively, you, you, start, to, uh, you, you start to realize uh, in our case back then that you needed to work around many of those things. But as you said, today it isn't quite that way. And to an extent, Amazon almost makes a promise about many of these services not failing or taking care of your infrastructure for you. For, for example, if you look at Aurora, is a stupendous, fantastic piece of database software. It's extremely fast. It's always replicated in multiple availability zones, so multiple data centers. The failover time is uh, uh, less than a second, I think, uh, at the moment. And when you're tasked with uh, solving a problem, building a service, uh, you, you're gonna choose to build it on top of Aurora 
neglecting to think about what happens if Aurora doesn't answer to me because the network goes off or what happens if uh, my machines go down because I misconfigured them. Like some of the biggest higher profile issues in terms of infrastructure of the last year alone, for example, with, uh, with the S3 have been uh, erroneous configuration changes being pushed to production. What do you do at that point? Like there's, your system needs to be built in such a way that is going to be resistant, at least partially to some of these things. And Amazon is trying to build a lot of the tools around that stuff, but I think it still takes a, it still takes a lot of uh, mind presence from the developers and architect to to actually do this in a, in a thoughtful way. Use the services that you need to use in a thoughtful way. Understand the perimeter of your of your infrastructure and in particular the assumptions you're making as you're building the infrastructure. And if you can design a graceful degradation service where where a failure of an entire subsystem is not going to lead to complete failure to serve a website, but that you slowly get to just a less useful website progressively, but still maintaining the core service that you might offer, then it, it, it improves your infrastructure quite, quite a lot. I think this is where Chaos Monkey, Gorilla, whatever, King Kong, Kong, or, or whatever it's called for the region failure uh, come into play to try to exercise those muscles. Uh, it's obviously important to have them going in production, but I think uh, even a good start would be to have those running as you're prototyping your software and uh, and just see uh, where if the failures bring you. And another trend we've seen recently is the use of TLA Plus as a formal uh, formal verification language where you can uh, effectively spec your system using using these uh, formal languages and then test it. Uh, using verification software so that it, it highlights places where your assumptions were uh, not checking out with reality effectively. The challenge that I've always had when looking at, I guess, shall we say, older art environments and older architectures is that in the early days, what you just described was very common, where you wind up taking a existing on-prem data center app and more or less migrating that wholesale directly as a one-to-one -one migration into the cloud. That was great when you could view the cloud as just a giant pile of, I guess, similar style resources. But now with 150 something in AWS alone, the higher level services start to unlock and empower different things that weren't possible back then, at least not without a tremendous amount of work. You talk, for example, about not having enough people around who can program FPGAs. Do you think that if you were building AdRoll today, for example, you would focus uh, different. You would focus on higher level services architecturally. Like, would you go serverless? Would containers be interesting, or would you effectively stick to the tried and true architecture that got you to where you are? Probably, uh, I would probably do a mix. I think what's important to evaluate as building infrastructure is uh, is the skill set of the people that uh, you have working on your team, and you certainly need to play to their strengths. Ultimately, they are the ones uh, building and maintaining your infrastructure, not Amazon, not uh, an external vendor, and most certainly not the open source maintainer of uh, whichever project you use in alternative. And the other aspect uh, is try to understand, uh, sometimes with in subtle indications from, from, the, from Amazon, uh, which services Amazon is investing most of their energy or a lot of their energy in so that you know that they continue to grow and they continue to receive support and uh, and they continue to fix bugs and issues because you know that they'll be with you for the 
for the rest of your company's life, for example. But on the other hand, a lot of times you write software just automatically without really thinking about the, the better way to write something just because you're used to it. And so typically, it's not an easy thing to just jump out of the habit of, of getting an instance going to do something. Uh, and it might be a good idea at first, but if you develop a good process to test new, new architectures and new, uh, new ideas, you might quickly end up realizing, well, actually, I don't need to run a T2 micro or whatever for, uh, for running this, this particular thing with, uh, with S3, where every time a file is uploaded on S3, I run some checks on the file that is uploaded to S3. You might realize, well, maybe the best thing to do is, uh, is to try to play around with a Lambda function instead. And uh, that, that effectively fixes your entire problem. One area that, for example, we've tested around and it's on our on Adro's technical blog is that we built a, a globally distributed, uh, eventually consistent counter that uses DynamoDB and Lambda and S3 together and effectively is able to aggregate all of the counts that are happening in each of the remote regions into a single counter in a central region that can then be synced back to each remote region. This way we can keep track of, uh, for example, in our case, how much money has been spent in each particular region and be sure that this money is spent, uh, is spent efficiently. And the only other alternative way to do it is to set up a fairly complex database of your own, uh, make sure that latency of updates is fast enough and that all the machines are up and running all the time. And if anything goes down, it's a, it's a high urgency situation because your controls on the budgets go away. So it's um, sometimes it's really useful to, especially when dealing with problems in which communication and, and the flow of information isn't particularly easy to grasp for, a, for an engineer. It's easy to be able to remove an entire layer of a, of a problem and be like reliant on someone else to be providing the SLA that they are promising you. And so effectively that's the case for, for what for Lambda is. If, if there is a, there's obviously a particular uh, range of, uh, of uses in which Lambda makes complete sense, both from the point of view of price uh, and from the point of view of the resources needed or the type of computation that runs on it. And if you can manage to keep this in, in, your, in your mind when you're making decisions and, or you can make some tests, uh, you, can, you can actually discover that maybe you can use Lambda and you get away with not having to solve uh, quite, quite a challenging problem at the end of the day. So sometimes it helps rewriting some infrastructure just as an exercise. What, 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 what I do at Adderall is that I do, as a CTO, I tend to not have a lot of direct reports. I consider each service at Adderall to be my direct report as a, as a team, effectively, each of them being a team. And they, every, every six weeks, uh, they, they provide a short, presentation in which they explain uh, the budgets that they've gone through, whether they have overspent or uh, underspent and why. And among the many things, they also talk about their infrastructure. We have diagrams of infrastructure. We talk about new releases from Amazon and what would be a new way to build the same thing. And they evaluate whether it would save money or not. And so you kind of need to have someone in the organization, especially if you're planning to adopt some of the new technologies that 
their role is effectively dedicated to being up to date with what's going on in the world and knowing the infrastructure of your of your systems and uh, be able to make suggestions and then let the team make the decision at that point. What's also sometimes hard to reconcile for some people is that these services don't hold still. And I think one of the better services to draw this parallel to is one I know you're passionate about. Let's talk a little bit about S3. Uh, before we started recording the show, you mentioned that you thought that it was pretty misunderstood. Yeah. What do you yeah. mean by that? Well, S3 has been, uh, in my view, it's been one of the, the closest thing to magic that, that exists inside AWS. Until not long ago, the maximum amount of data that you could pull from S3 was one gigabit per second uh, on, uh, on streams. On streams. You were limited in the number of requests per second that you could run on the same shard of S3. Uh, there was no way of tagging objects. Uh, there was uh, the latency on the first byte when, it, when S3 started was, uh, was in the two, 300 milliseconds. It was expensive. S3 probably has undergone some of the most cost cutting that you could see out there. And part of the decreasing cost is that the standard storage classes become cheaper, but also they have added significant other storage classes that you can move your data in and out of relatively simply without having to change the service effectively. It's the same, very same API, but different cost profile and storage mechanism. And when it, when it all started, there was just one. It was just US standard, and it was pretty expensive to use, both in terms of uh, per request cost and storage cost. But yeah, today, today there's the limit on the single bandwidth. Uh, the bandwidth on a single stream is not one gigabit per second anymore. It's uh, at least five gigabits per second. If you can get 100 gigs on uh, uh, one of the instances that have 100 gig networking inside Amazon, you can get all of those 100 gigs out of S3, just fetching multiple streams. The latency that you get on the first byte is well below 100 milliseconds. Their uh, range queries are very well supported, so you could fetch blocks in, inside S3. S3 has turned into almost a database now. With S3 Select, it allows you to run filters directly on your files by decompressing them on the fly and recompressing them afterwards. or, or uh, or simply by reading richer formats, like it could be Parquet, for example. It, it, it honestly is is uh, something that it's it's hard to imagine how you could build a sir, uh, how you could build everything that we have going on right now at Adro without S3. It has gotten to the point where running an HDFS cluster for us is uh, is not really that useful. Uh, if you look at EMR themselves, they have a version of HBase that runs backed by S3. And I know of extremely big companies that have moved from running HBase backed by file system HDFS to instead HBase backed by S3 that have had incredible improvements in performance and the consistency of the performance uh, of HBase. And HBase is very sensitive to the performance of the disks because it's a it's a consistent, uh, consistent first database effectively. And if the region that is currently master, sorry, if the server that is currently master for a region uh, is, is slow, it ends up bringing down uh, that, that entire region effectively. It's a service that has grown dramatically. And we have experimented even when using it as a file system by using user file descriptors uh, in the kernel. More recent versions of the Linux kernel allow user file descriptors. and 
If you have limited use for uh, writing, uh, like we do, and you want to treat a file system like a write once, read many file system, then uh, S3 becomes actually surprisingly useful as well. Um, Netflix published a blog article on their tech blog talking about, for example, how they use um, a way to mount S3 as a local file system in order to uh, using FMP, FFmpeg to run uh, um, to run movie decoding and transcoding because effectively FFmpeg was not created with the idea that S3 was around and so it needs to have the entire file available on the local system or at least an entire block available. It doesn't work well with streams and so if you can abstract that part away from the FMP, FFmpeg API and move it in the file system, you can suddenly use S3 as some kind of almost a file system. And we've done a similar thing when it comes to processing columnar files uh, or, or indexed files uh, from inside S3, where you know, if you know exactly the range of data that you want to access, you can just do it inside S3. Uh, we use it as a communication layer between the map and the reduce stage of our homegrown MapReduce frameworks. And uh, it's, it's again, it allows us to cut away thousands of hours per day on uh, waiting times for downloading a file to the local disk before processing it on local disk. We can just process it right away and cache it on the box after it's been downloaded. It's quite remarkable. The, the, the speed increase, uh, the cost decrease, the street select. Uh, I think, I think uh, we're going to see in the near future databases that start to use S3 as the actual backend for their storage more and more. Uh, without worrying about the limitations of the current disk uh, and effectively we'll be able to scale in a stateless way uh, adding as many machines as you want and respond to as much, as much traffic as you can uh, without needing to worry about failures either. It's, a, it's an incredible amount of, of opportunity and, and possibility that is coming down in the future that I'm really excited to see become real. I think that requires people to update a lot of their understandings about it. I mean, one of the things that I've always noticed that's been incredibly frustrating is that people believe it when it says it's simple storage service. Oh, simple. And you look on Hacker News and that's generally the consensus. Well, S3 doesn't sound hard. I can build one of those in a weekend. And you see a bunch of companies trying to spin up alternatives to this, uh, companies no one's ever heard of before. Oh, we're going to do S3, but on the blockchain is another popular one that makes me just roll my eyes back in my head so hard I pass out. The, <laughs> it's, um, you're, you're right. This is the closest thing to magic that I think you'll see in all of AWS. And people haven't seemed to update their opinion. I think you're right. It's getting closer to a database than almost anything else. But the I guess the discussions around it tend to be, well, a little facile, for lack of a better term. It's, well, there was this outage a couple of years ago, and it went down for four hours in a single region, and that's a complete non-starter, so we can't ever trust it. Who's going to be able to run their own internal data store with better uptime than that? Remarkably few people. Yeah, I mean, Adrol has used uh, 17 exabytes of bandwidth from S3, just for our uh, business intelligence workload uh, from EC2 to S3 this, this past month. I don't even, <laughs> I don't even know how, <laughs> how to even start. Like if, uh, if a router communicating between S3 and uh, whatever instance we have going around goes out and we're out, we're out for good. 
S3 has multiple different paths to reach EC2, and they are all redundant. Each uh, uh, machine's internal there is uh, is obviously redundant. They replicate the data in multiple zones and whatnot. This bandwidth is available across multiple zones because I'm storing data inside the, inside the region, so it's it's already available in multiple data centers. The number of boxes that are needed to aggregate to seven to seventeen exabytes. Uh, as well, it's it's quite impressive. The we have no people thinking about this. We run we run over, I think we run over twenty billion requests per uh, per month on uh, on S three. I'm pretty sure that bucket, if it were made public, would be one of the biggest properties in terms of volume on the web. Uh, and uh, I just can't see it. like tw- processing twenty billion events per month with files that, that are sometimes significantly uh, big, it's going to take a lot of people. <laughs> exactly. People like to undervalue the, what their own expertise, the, what their time costs, the, the, the opportunity cost of focusing on that more than yeah. other stuff. And, and you still see it with strange implementations of trying to mount S3 in a fuse file system. Trying to treat it like that has never worked out for anything I've ever seen, but people keep trying. Yeah, it's... it's uh, the, the fuse file system uh, is a, is an interesting one. I think I think things might change in the future, but it, it, it needs to be done with some concept of what you're doing. It's not it really isn't a file system, but it, it works for a certain subset of the use cases. And we're not even talking about necessarily yet all of the compliance side of things. So encryption, ability to rotate your keys, to set permissions on who can or cannot access, tagging each object building rules for accessing the objects or the prefix based on uh, the tags available on, on that object using using the IAM policies and... Lifecycle transitions, object locks so no one can delete it, litigation hold options, yeah. and then take a look at Deep Archive, uh, $12,000 a year to store a petabyte? That's that's who cares money. Yeah, that's, that's uh, exactly, <laughs> absolutely right. Plus, uh, it doesn't matter at a certain point in time, if you're not compliant and you're storing that much data, you just can't. So you, <laughs> you're going to have to delete it all. There's a lot of different uh, security regulations. GDPR is incoming. Is your database going to help out to remain compliant? Uh, well, GDPR isn't incoming, actually. It came out a year ago. But uh, with GDPR on, uh, here and uh, the California privacy law incoming next, uh, uh, at the end of the year and the end of this year, is your data, is your, your storage system going to help you to become compliant? Who's going to build all of the compliance tools on top of, uh, on top of your storage system and, and make sure that you remain compliant for kingdom come? So that basically it's, uh, it's, it's a, I mean, it's, it's, it's awesome. And I think it's a healthy exercise for every engineer to always question what, uh, what is the value that you're getting out of a service and try to scheme or, or like, understand uh, the infrastructure, try to try to like whiteboard it out and, and maybe do quick cost estimation. But it's never enough to have just the engineer in there. Security is a stakeholder of this kind of decisions. The operations team is a stakeholder in this kind of decision. The business is in the is a, is a stakeholder in this kind of decision. The business might not be happy, as you said, to spend $500,000 for two engineers to work on S3 a year when they can spend 12000 to get uh, a petabyte store the year <laughs> inside the street, just uh, it's just a lot easier. Uh, Twelve grand is really who cares money? Exactly, especially when you're dealing with what it takes to build and run something that 
leverages that much data, it's it becomes almost a side note. And the durability guarantees remain there as well. Feels like one of those things we could go on with for hours and hours. Yeah, and the other the other aspect that is very important is uh, how close S three is to the computing power. Because uh, as I said, like seventeen exabytes of data just for BI purposes, I cannot do that across data center. There's no way that, that would that would cost uh, everything from the, from the business in terms of bandwidth costs. Many times, other vendors approach uh, Adrol, obviously asking for using their storage solution, but you're simply either for deploy either to deploy you. I need my own data center, and then you're not close to the uh, where the capacity is, or you um, are in another system where I don't need a data center, but you're not located near my compute capacity, and so I lose that piece of the piece of the uh, of the equation that makes all of the the, the stuff that I want to do worthwhile. To an extent, S three is the biggest locking uh, reason behind the behind DC2. It really is hard to replicate all of the different bits and pieces of technology that are built on top of S3. And in particular, being so close to so many services that are easy to integrate with each other from with using things such as Lambda or EC2 makes it very compelling. Other cloud vendors are, are, are obviously always on the catch up and, and, and getting there, but I don't think they're quite uh, to the level of customization, security, compliance, and uh, uh, ease of use that really Amazon S3 has. It also has really hard aspects to it as well, uh, but I think by and large, it's a huge success story. If people are interested in hearing more, uh, I guess, of your wise thoughts on the proper application of these various services, where on the internet can they find you? Oh, I... The easiest way to find me is uh, to shoot me questions, comments, or follow me on uh, on my Twitter account, dialtone underscore. Adrol also has a tech blog at tech.adrol.com. We usually publish a lot of uh, a lot of interesting articles about the ongoings with our infrastructure, things such as the uh, globally eventually consistent counter. Uh, that I mentioned earlier, but also our uh, extreme use of the spot market effectively, or our uh, strange use of S3 as a quasi-file system for, for processing our uh, MapReduce jobs, which also are described in our blog. And generally speaking, I'm, uh, I'm more than happy to answer questions uh, and whatnot to local events. I usually go to as many local events as I can here with the uh, either AWS uh, user events or other meetups or go to a random set of other conferences as well. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Valentino Valonghi, CTO of AdRoll. I'm Corey Quinn, and this is Screaming in the Cloud. This has been this week's episode of Screaming in the Cloud. You can also find more Corey at ScreamingInTheCloud.com or wherever fine snark is sold. Pod production. Stay humble.